Welcome to episode four of the Untethered podcast. Today, our guest is Autumn Reed Henning. She is a certified and licensed speech language pathologist and certified orofacial myologist through the International Association of Orofacial Myology, the IAOM. She graduated from the University of Kentucky with a master's degree in communication disorders. Autumn is currently appointed and in good standing as an assistant professor within the voluntary faculty series in the Department of Communication Sciences and Disorders at the University of Kentucky College of Health Sciences. She was a founding board member for the International Consortium of Oral Ankylofrenula Professionals, ICAP. Autumn is a member of the American Academy of Private Practice in Speech-Language Pathology and Audiology, and Autumn has completed specialty continuing education, including Beckman Oral Motor, Vital Stim, Tummy Tie Method, Understanding the Orofacial Complex, and Foundations in Myofascial Release for Neck, Voice, and Swallowing. She has experience working in the school system, early intervention, and ABA center, and outpatient clinics, including a nationally award-winning intensive feeding program. Autumn specializes in orofacial function and development through the lifespan. She serves pediatric patients through Advanced Institute for Development and Learning, AIDL. And Autumn is a founder of Chrysalis Orofacial, which functions to serve adult patients and provide continuing education to colleagues globally. Autumn's married to Dr. Zach Henning, and they have a daughter, McKenna Grace Henning. They reside in Greenville, South Carolina with their beloved cats. And her hobbies include travel, reading, church, and any activity with her family. Quick disclaimer, all information, content, and material of this podcast are the opinions of the speakers and is for the informational purpose only and not intended to serve as a substitute for the consultation, diagnosis, and or medical treatment of a qualified healthcare provider. Welcome to the Untethered Podcast. I am your host, Hallie Balkin. I'm a certified orofacial myologist, feeding specialist, and mentor. This podcast is all about getting your questions answered and collaborating with colleagues to bring you the most up-to-date information in the orofacial myofunctional therapy, tethered oral tissue, and airway space. I challenge you to keep an open mind and join my mission to get this information out to the masses. Let's get started. First of all, thank you so much for being on the podcast. I'm super excited to have you with us. Um, especially because what has it been almost like two years now since we started chatting when we were both doing our certification or actually it's been more than two years. Yeah. Gosh. Yeah. It was a couple summers ago, I'd say. Right. Yeah. Because I took the course, it was like June in Chicago and that was what, 20, 2017. Were you in Chicago? I thought you were in, um, Springfield. So no. So I took your course. In Springfield. Okay. But when I took my calm course, got it. Okay. That was back a few years ago in, um, Chicago. So yeah. And then we both were studying for the calm and fun times. And here we are. (laughs) Here we are. Both calms now. Yay. Yeah. So is there anything that you want to share with us before we jump on in or should we just start talking about some of, you know, our common encounters that we have with people who end up in our office? (laughs) Let's just go for it. Um, So I know one of the things that we see often um, that you and I talked about a little bit is when people end up in our office and they go, you know, hey, why didn't anybody else tell me that I had a tongue tie or that, you know, this could be the the issue behind all of my other symptoms and so on and so forth. So, you know, let's start there. Tell me, you know, what you see in relation to people saying that to you, how you address it with them and... Honestly, it really doesn't matter the age of my client with that. 
-hmm. it seems that's a common theme throughout. So whether it's, you know, a two-week-old baby or a 55-year-old man, I hear that really often. Like, you know, I've seen, why didn't the pediatrician tell me this? Why didn't um, my other speech pathologist tell me this? Or, you know, the lactation consultant or the ENT or whoever. So the people that we see are, you know, over, over a lifetime, you know, it starts out with, you know, breastfeeding issues and GI issues and, you know, things like that. And then it just snowballs and becomes pediatric feeding concerns and feet and articulation issues and then headaches, TMJ, sleep apnea, and more serious things that have a lot of comorbidities, you know, such as hypertension and um, just a huge impact on quality of life. Back to the kids, I mean, even the sleep issues and ADHD is just kind of an epidemic out there. It's really very interesting to see. I call it breadcrumbs, <laughs> and um, kind of like the whole Hansel and Gretel, the breadcrumbs led them down the path to the house or whatever. You can see that in adults when you go back and look at the whole history. I don't know about you, but I've had people be really relieved. You know, here I am telling them, hey, there's this issue. And they're like, oh, thank goodness. You know, now I have an answer. And, um, you know, all of the struggle that I've been through has made sense. Now, does tongue tie, you know, is it the only thing going on? Sometimes, sometimes not. And, you know, the longer it goes on, the more compensations we have and the more ingrained it is. Definitely frustrating on my end, as well as the family and the patient, just because they trust these, you know, other healthcare providers and medical providers. Mm-hmm. And I'm kind of the outlier saying, well, <laughs> you know, this is what I'm seeing. This is my professional expertise and opinion. And so it really puts them in a hard place sometimes and puts me in a hard place sometimes too. So navigating that is really tough. Yeah. I mean, I've had uh, people come into my office and say, well, do you ever assess anybody that doesn't have a tongue tie? And I'm like, oh, well, and you know, and I have to stop myself for a second and be like, okay, look, if I was that parent sitting on the other side of the table or that adult client, you know, sitting there hearing this for the first time after I've seen umpteen professionals, you know, and, or I've been told by 13 years of speech pathologists or three lactation consultants for, you know, an infant or whatever, you know, that the baby doesn't have a tongue tie or the adult doesn't have a tongue tie and they're hearing it now for the first time, or or maybe they've never been told anything. They've never even heard the word tongue tie. You know, it's, I've heard it all. So, you know, I I had to laugh the first time somebody asked me that because it kind of stopped me in my tracks and I went, you know, I said, I really appreciate that question because I would, I would ask the same thing if I were you. And I have to tell you a lot of professionals refer to me because they're almost at their wit's end. Like other speech pathologists will refer to me now that they know I do this and I specialize in this because they want to roll it out. So have I assessed kids where I feel like, okay, you know, are we, are we sure? Are we not sure? Sure. There's some that are borderline. And have I assessed them where I say, yeah, no, I'm not concerned about what's going on under your tongue. Absolutely. I mean, I do get people in my office where they may have some symptoms, but we look under the tongue and we look at the whole picture and all the pieces. And I go, you know, Hey, I, I really don't see restricted tissue under your tongue. You know, I think you have great mobility. I think you have great function and there may be a few things going on that we can address, but I'm not going to send you off to the oral surgeon or the dentist for, you know, an immediate phrenectomy consult. So 
It's always so interesting though, because I think the parents are just like coming here and expecting to get a diagnosis. And I think some of them are like, oh, I'm so relieved that, you know, we, we didn't get it. And then other times they're so relieved that they did get it because they're like, this is the answer we've been looking for. And anyway, so we'll go more into that. But yeah, do you, do you hear that too? <laughs> I do. And, you know, I think it's kind of amazing because when I, you know, may have an assessment and find an oral restriction, and I walk them through, you know, how all of this is connected and, you know, how it fits into their history, how it could affect their health overall and development and things like that. I like being met with skepticism. I think in our society, you know, the doctor is supposed to, to know all and be all. Mm-hmm. And I think people forget that all of us healthcare providers are also just human and we yeah. can't know everything and do everything. Yes. And that's that's why I specialize. Mm-hmm. And, you know, I think it's dangerous to paint an entire profession with like a broad brush. Yeah. You know, like lactation is awful because they missed it or speech is awful. They missed it. It's very dependent on the provider. And I know we've had conversations about this before, but we really don't get much in school about this. Mm-hmm. So it truly is a specialty and continuing to learn and, you know, each case, I learned something for sure. So I, I do share a lot of the sentiments. Mm-hmm. Well, and I think that's a really good point because sometimes, you know, the parents come and they're, they're like, why didn't my other speech pathologist point this out to me? Or why didn't lactation point this out when they were a baby? Or why didn't my dentist, you know, my prior dentist look under my tongue and tell me they saw this, but my new dentist did and, or whatever the case may be. And, you know, and I always take a step back and go, look, like the same thing you said, we all have, like you said, you can't paint a whole profession, right? (laughs) With one generalized statement. It's about what what we specialize in and different people specialize in different things. And people, I think, because of how prevalent the discussion has become in the past couple of years, people think like this is a fad and all of a sudden everyone's just diagnosing tongue ties and sending people off for diagnoses. And, you know, it's funny because I will educate parents and say, look, there's, there's two things I want you to know. Tongue ties have been around for a very, very, very long time. Like we're talking decades. It's not a new thing. <laughs> and, you know, way back when, you know, the uh, midwives would just take their fingernails and slice that little frenulum under the tongue when a baby came out with a tongue tie. It wasn't really an ongoing discussion that point. So it's just how it's evolved over time and how it's dealt with and what it's turned into. Um, I always say like, you know, fashion comes in 20 year cycles. I feel like tongue ties kind of coming in 20 year cycles too. <laughs> yeah, absolutely. Years ago, they would release every baby that was born. And then we kind of had this lag of it just wasn't really touched upon, talked upon. There were gag orders in hospitals. And I feel like now it's kind of becoming a thing again. Um, but it's been there all along. It's just, you know, but yes, going back to education yeah, I learned nothing about pediatric feeding. I learned nothing about pediatric, you know, well, it was all very language and speech-based, but like zero motor approach to speech, um, which I totally use a motor approach these days. And, you know, it's all evolved through additional courses that I've taken and certifications that I've sought out. And that's where I feel like, you know, education is so important because the last thing we want to do is, you know, throw a colleague under the bus. You know, I don't, you know, I do know some of what some of my colleagues who I work closely with, like what their education has been, because I'm aware of that, but I don't know who you've worked with and what their education has been. And um, I never want to put down a colleague because I think we're all really out there. We're in this, we're in a helping profession. We're in this profession because we love what we do. We want to help people. Um, But I think it's so important to get that information out to the masses that it depends what 
coursework after school has ended for all of us doctors, ENTs, you know, speech pathologists, lactation consultants. It really just depends what we've gone on to do after that and what you come to specialize in. So I think that's a really big message that I want people to hear like loud and clear. Like your doctor did not intentionally fail you. Your other speech pathologist did not intentionally fail you. You know, you're, you are where you are today, thankfully, and we can help you, but you know, it, it took a, a road to get here. So anyways, yeah, I think that's a really good message. Yes, absolutely. And I think there, for parents, there's a lot of like guilt too. Mm-hmm. Like, why didn't I know this? And I, I do have to do like a lot of counseling and yes. even I'm like you, like, this is a very specific uh, niche part of our field. And so I have other speech pathologists that bring their children to me. Uh-huh. And yep. so they're like, how, how did I not know this? I've told an ENT or mm-hmm. one family, mom was a pediatric dentist and dad was an oral surgeon, that <laughs> their child had a, a tie. And they're like, well, we would know. And I was like, well, okay. Let's, Let's take a look. The other thing is, I think there's this mentality that it's a simple assessment, that it's just a little peeksie under the tongue (laughs) or, you know, let's just feel, oh, that feels a little tight. People need to know that there are truly assessments out there with scores and numbers and criteria um, for, you know, oral function. Mm -hmm. And so that's one of the biggest things that I've changed over my practice um, is really, you know, going through the scoring with the family. Like, you know, this is why he got this score and this is why he got this score and mm-hmm. um, educating them because then it becomes real and it's numbers and it's not just Miss Autumn saying there's a restriction. They see it, you know, it's the breadcrumbs. They see how it fits and then they can go back to whoever they've seen before and say, Hey, look, you know, this really did help my child or this really did help me. And, you know, I want you to be aware of it. Like you said, a lot of healthcare professionals just don't know, you know, I beat myself up for, we all have. Yeah. You know, about 15 years ago, not knowing anything about tongue tie, except the very obvious can't stick your tongue out heart shaped tongue tie. And, you know, I think, wow, how many, how many kids did I miss? How many did I not know how to help? I think as professionals, we just have to let that go. And when we know better, we do better. That's kind of what started me down this rabbit hole with tongue tie. And is it the answer to everything? Definitely not. But it's quite often a factor. And it reminded me of when you were talking about the family that asked you, well, how many people do you assess that don't have tongue tie? Honestly, not a whole lot. Yeah, few and far between. <laughs> yes, because, I mean, yeah, it's, they're continuing to struggle and they've been to several people and then they get to me. And so quite honestly, that's never been fully assessed properly. And then once you kind of get into this, then you're kind of known for, you know, if you suspect a tongue tie, go to this person for the assessment. Yeah. You know, do I think that, you know, 80 to 90% of the general population have tongue tie? No, definitely not. Right. But it is 80 to 90% in my practice because that's why they're going. Yeah. You don't come in if you don't have a problem with oral functionality. 
Right. And so, yeah, yeah. And that's, and that's the best explanation I think we can give to parents. And I love what you said though, about providing like real hard data and numbers. I also love taking videos and I will tell the families, like we get their consent ahead of time. And I tell them the videos are my best way. I say, first of all, I see a lot of kids in one day or adults and I just want to be able to go back and really look at your child or your mouth and see what's going on. And I tell them, I capture so much in a video watching it later that I did not see in real time. And it really lets me analyze and study what's going on when they're chewing a bolus or they're, you know, doing a, a lingual movement or whatever. Um, and I can pull the best photos. And when I can show a parent what I'm seeing, they're like, oh yeah, I see that. And I think that right there, it's like that visual proof. You can't, you can't argue with visual proof. <laughs> you know, then the parents, when they have numbers and they've got pictures and things, I think they're kind of like, oh yeah, okay. That makes a lot of sense. So yeah, there's a lot of, a lot to be said for like some hard data. You know, I'll narrate the video. Okay. Mm -hmm. He tried to move the, the food over. He couldn't and yeah. he used his finger or he placed it on the side mm -hmm. or, um, you know, whatever it is. Or did you see the pool and dimple in that tongue when they moved a certain way? Or do you see how he like she's on the left side of his face? <laughs> yes. Yes. And I do think that speaks volumes mm -hmm. and you know, there's a lot of trend out there looking at the frenulum based on visibility. Yeah. But it, it really is more about function and feel. And when you can show that, that's really helpful. Yeah. I do get a question a lot of times about um, what to do when you, you find a restriction and the family is just not ready to, to go down that road. Mm. Um, and that's something that I'll do with the video. And I'll, I'll kind of just narrate. I'll say, okay, you know, see how, you know, that's happening, that may be related to the restriction, or this is the way they're compensating or whatnot. And that really helps because I tell all my families, I don't want you to go do this because I said it's an issue. I want you to research and really know it's the right thing for your child or your health or your family. Let's talk also about like your optimal timeline of care then. So some of these families I know who are not always ready per se, um, but for when they are ready, and I know obviously the team members that we're referring out to sometimes will differ based on each individual case, but what is your general optimal timeline and what does your team look like that you refer to? You know, who do you refer to? Why do you refer to them? When do you refer to them? What does that look like for you? So as far as optimal timeline, I think it's just going to vary based on case to case. And that's what I would encourage all patients and professionals to understand is that there isn't one right way necessarily. There are, you know, like I have a general trajectory that I kind of follow, but you know, one child, it may take two weeks to get there. Whereas another, it may take three months, depending on what's going on. Number one, we need a functional assessment of, you know, what's going on and a really good baseline, knowing where we, where we come from is is really helpful it's tough to see a patient after they've been released because you have no idea what things were like before and where the breakdown may be occurring and if that was actually necessary mm -hmm. uh, so number one they've got to see somebody trained in this with the skills and training to assess whatever issues they're having so you know for infant that could be lactation professional, that could be OT, that could be SLP. 
pretty much. For a kid with speech issues, that's going to be a speech pathologist. For an older child with feeding issues, that's going to be an SLP or OT with that training. And for things like, you know, mouth breathing, tongue thrust, teeth grinding, all those myofunctional issues, it's going to be possibly an RDH or a dental hygienist or a SLP. Getting the right people on the assessment is important um, and doing that beforehand. My providers, I'm so lucky and blessed. And I think a lot of people come to my classes and they're like, wow, that's all great and fine, but you have a team, you know? <laughs> well, it's not that easy. The team has formed over years, right? You know, and like a lot of relationship building and um, trust building and trial and error, honestly. And so as far as my team, I don't have a preference of who does it, honestly, as far as is it a pediatrician? Is it a dentist? Is it an ENT? It's really who is the best trained and qualified for that particular case and what, what the patient needs, you know, and that can range from insurance coverage to sedation options to family preference and tool used, all of that. Yeah. And so really taking that whole thing into account is important. I think there's this notion of the preferred provider list still out there. That just kind of drives me a little bonkers because it really isn't a criteria set for it. And there's no like objective measure or scoring. It's really just, hey, you know, a lot of people have gone to this person and the outcomes have been good. Mm -hmm. And so I created my own criteria. And for me, referrals are very, very personal. Because if I send somebody somewhere and it doesn't go well, you know, that's my reputation too. And I, I get very attached to my clients and feel very um, responsible and, you know, a sense of accountability for their care, you know, and I can't do it all. Obviously, I don't get the outcomes that we get without a team. So my criteria um, for referrals are someone that understands all types and classes of oral restrictions, so not just those anterior ones, um, understand that it can have profound effects throughout the lifespan. So it's not just about breastfeeding. Mm-hmm. It's not just about speech. It's, you know, all those other peripheral things. Um, they require a functional assessment. Mm-hmm. So it's not just a structural evaluation. They want Honestly, my providers, you don't get in their office until you've seen someone to assess the function. That's really important. Um, Doing a full release is important as well. I've seen a lot of hangnail clippings is what I call them. It's just like a little nick. And um, yeah, and that's just a provider that may not know someone not specialized in that. And I think as a parent, like I want to go see somebody that has invested has experience, has proven outcomes, works with my other care professionals. So yeah, full release and then aftercare. So especially if the wound is being left open, if you're, if you're not recommending any sort of aftercare to manage that healing and guide and direct it, mm-hmm. then the procedure is a moot point because there's going to be reattachment uh, <laughs> that happens. Those are kind of my criteria. As far as timeline, there's some markers that I look for for when someone's ready. It's really cool because I 
see the lifespan. So, you know, newborn babies to, you know, 80 year olds, those readiness factors are different in all of those cases. Mm -hmm. But the main thing that I use analogy that I use is if you were to have knee surgery, you need supporting structures to support that new, new um, mobility and function. So, you know, maybe your, your hip needs to be strong and your calf needs to be strong to support that new knee. Mm -hmm. The same for the tongue, you know, we need jaw stability, um, dissociation, and, you know, not compensating with our neck or our lips. Mm -hmm. And so taking care of that beforehand helps. Somebody on Facebook, I love this, said that releasing the tongue without an initial assessment and therapy starting out is like releasing a feral animal. <laughs> and it's true. Like the so tongue is real. just kind of like, I have no idea what to do. Wow. And so I, I do see, see better function integrated with that pre-therapy. So I see the tongue going to the spot faster mm -hmm. than, you know, if we haven't worked on it before. And I think part of it is that neurological programming of, you know, this is what we've always done. This is what we're always going to do. And starting to change that schemata is really powerful and helps them integrate it much faster after. 100% agree. I see that too. Did that answer all of that? I think so. I mean, and you touched on some really good points. So going back to talking about a functional evaluation, I, you know, sometimes I'm sure you get this too. People call you who out of the blue found you online or from a provider that you might not always work closely with. And, you know, they're doing their job by referring them to you for an eval, but what they failed to do was refer them before the tongue tie was released, right? So I get these people who say, hey, I just had a tongue tie release done yesterday and I need to get in to see you ASAP. And I'm like, whoa, whoa, whoa. First of all, like I'm booking two months out right now. And if we were going to have a release done, I would have liked to see you for a functional eval first, followed by some pre-op. And like you said, it depends on the case. Sometimes they need a week or two and sometimes they need two or three months of pre-op. So I don't know what you need until I assess you. And now if I see you after you've had the release, I have no idea what our baseline was. I don't know where you started. I don't know, you know, obviously can we make progress? Sure. But by the time you get into my office, you might have had some reattachment. I, you know, I don't know what your, your case, your best case scenario is at this point. Um, so I really, you know, try to do my best to educate those referral sources like you're doing to make sure we need to have that functional eval. And I'm very lucky too, because I've built up my team around here and, um, you know, my dentist will see the tongue tie and refer them to me. And we have like a little, you know, checklist. So they, I know exactly why they're referring them when I get them here they even call me and I can tell that they have the referral sheet in front of them because they will say, um, my dentist referred me for, you know, a tongue thrust, um, a, you know, possible tongue tie and um, some feeding issue, whatever, you know, they like read off some different things on my checklist. And I'm going, well, this is beautiful. I'm like, yes, we finally have made it. Um, but obviously, that's not every case that comes through the door. So, you know, and then there's times where I get families who want to, you know, I've had families too, who call and they say, well, we're having a tongue tie release done next week. And we want to set up an appointment to come see you after. And I'm like, I need to see you before. And then I never hear back from them. So, you know, it's, I think it's definitely um, a work in the making in the sense that there's a lot of education to be done amongst providers, because I think we all need to do better as providers in educating 
people. And I think that some dentists that I've talked to have this like fear of like, well, if I don't release them on the spot, they're not going to come back for the release. And I'm like, but if you release them on the spot and it reattaches worse than it was before, what good are you doing them? You know, it's like, there's so many things that could happen if you don't prep them the right way. So yeah, there's a lot to be said for that pre-op and that functional evaluation. You know, that's the thing, like you have to trust your team. And Mm -hmm. I, I do feel like I would respect a provider more if they said, look, you know, I don't want to just do this based on what I see and feel. I want to do this because I know this is what is a potential etiology or a cause of your issues. Yes. And so I think if there are any release providers out there listening to this, my one message to you is really utilize your team of functional people. Because what happens is you can do the best surgical procedure in the world, but if the family doesn't have support and ongoing care and a baseline that says, look, this is the tongue function before, what is to prevent, what if things get worse? What if there's something that you didn't see that a therapist or a lactation consultant would have seen? You know, that gives the whole industry a bad name, honestly. Oh, you know, we did the tongue tie release and it didn't work. Well, why didn't it work? Was it a full release? Did you see someone specialized? Was it actually their problem? Right. Um, Or did they have some other issue that was, you know, similar and mimicking some symptoms of ties? I really appreciate, I've got three or four providers here that I regularly refer to. Mm -hmm. And all of them, you don't get in. If someone calls and says, hey, I think we have a tongue tie. Can we come in? They'll say, we're not going to see you until you have an assessment. And that, you know, it's legit. So I really appreciate that. And I think there's a lot of emphasis on the surgery itself Mm -hmm. rather than the work that goes in pre and post. Yeah. I think people using the analogy that just because you wear running shoes does not make you a runner. (laughs) Just because you have full motion of the, you know, frenulum doesn't make you good at eating or talking or swallowing or whatever. So yeah, that definitely needs to be looked at. But kudos to you because it's not easy to build that team. And, you know, I know that depending also where you are in the country and how spread out some providers might be, you know, people have, you know, they're really trying to shape their own teams to the best of their ability. But sometimes you have to drive to go to a dentist or an airway centric ENT or, you know, a speech pathologist who understands ties or that IBCLC or osteopath or CST or whatever, you know, whoever the specialist might be, sometimes they're not right in your backyard. And I know as a busy parent with a business, you know, and I've had two tongue tied kids and I was tied myself and we've all been released, but I understand, you know, and I think that also helps me and my practice because I can really appreciate what the parents are feeling and what they're, you know, up against. And I understand the amount of work that goes in. And I've had the child where we didn't do any body work or pre-op at two who was released. And then I had the baby who was released at day five and I have myself who was released as an adult. So I feel like I've kind of been in almost like every (laughs) situation, like infant, toddler and me with varying, you know, different variations of how we approached it. That alone taught me how important that pre-op is and even helped me shape my pre-op differently after I went through it myself to see what was most effective for me, but but also understanding what's most effective for me might not be most effective for somebody else. So that's where I kind of want to shift next and talk about, you know, active wound management versus functional exercises and why 
you know, there's, I saw recently there was a website with a pediatrician who had like a list of exercises on her website. And I was like, Oh, like, it was like, a, I was like, no, cause parents were sharing this in a Facebook group. And I was like, oh, ultimate defeat. <laughs> I was like, we've come so far, but yet we have so far to go because no, you can't use the same exercises for everybody. It's not a cookbook recipe. So let's talk about that. Yes. You're full of loaded questions. I love that. <laughs> um, so this is, this is absolutely one of my soapboxes. Wound management is different than exercises. Here's how I explain it. Wound management basically just helps guide the healing, inhibits reattachment and scarring and things like that. Mm -hmm. That is the purpose of it. And it's usually a manual sort of implementation. Mm -hmm. Exercises are the things that build coordination and strength and functionality. Mm -hmm. And so those are the things that are actually going to improve the function. And so those are very different. And I think it's important to use the right words. So for me, and obviously this is different if there are sutures, but if it's like we have CO2 laser providers in our area and we developed it together, our wound management protocol, because they felt like, Hey, you know, yeah, I'm doing the procedure, but I'm not really seeing them much afterward. Mm -hmm. I have more of, you know, the ongoing relationship and can help monitor it throughout. Right. And so we have really changed our terminology and there's a lot of various protocols or recommendations out there. And I would just encourage anyone out there to listen to what their team is saying. Mm -hmm. I'm not saying what I, you know, something different from what I do is incorrect or wrong. It may be right for that case or that person. But in my experience, some important things to think about is, you know, minimizing having to be in the mouth and discomfort. Mm -hmm. an oral version. Um, So doing it in a non-aggressive way, I feel like getting in the wound bed and like rubbing and sweeping and all of that is not really necessary. The goal is to separate the tissue so that you get that diamondy looking relief and the top triangle shouldn't be able to stick to the bottom triangle. Right. So just being outside of that and lifting the tongue or the lip or whatever should be sufficient with the right placement, pressure, and technique. And that goes back to the pre-op and teaching that ahead of time. Mm-hmm. Um, getting the family comfortable with doing that before there's ever been a procedure done. Mm-hmm. That way you can watch them do it and do it on them and do it on their child and really tweak and hone the technique. There's so much emotion you know, afterward, they're afraid they're going to hurt or, you know, whatever. And I do, I point out like, Hey, you know, this is going to help that child get used to, okay, you know, mom just lifted my tongue and I didn't die. I'm right. fine. So it's they not like oh. the procedure, right? Like it's not attached to the procedure. So then maybe they're more willing and there's, they're less averse to letting you do it after the procedure. Absolutely. Absolutely. Yeah. So I like, I like the lifts. We adjust our protocol based on how everyone's healing. So I really don't like the idea of, okay, we have to do this eight times a day for, for three weeks or 10 days or whatever, because that's just not realistic. Yeah. I've had people heal really quickly and then people be much longer to heal. Yeah. Everyone has a different body chemistry and um, levels of, you know, inflammation and things that influence wound healing. Yeah, absolutely. So definitely varying those. That's, that's kind of where I am on that. 
And, you know, really being in touch with your release providers is important so that if you see something going differently and that follow-up care is so important, important because if healing is not going well or they have a little setback or whatever, you know, back in the day, one of our dentists would do a release without the whole follow-up functional assessment stuff. And she would get calls of, hey, my baby's not nursing. What do I do? Or, you know, things like that. And she's like, well, you know, I did the procedure right. There's no, like, bleeding or infection. Like, what do I tell them? I'm not a lactation consultant. I'm not a feeding therapist or a speech therapist. And so that's the importance of having that ongoing support and follow-up. You know, I prepare my families beforehand of common issues that may happen or things when they should worry and when something's completely normal. Mm-hmm. Um, and, you know, what the wound is going to look like, topics of discomfort care and things like that. So I think those are all important things to know on the front end and not just jump into a procedure. Now back to your um, talk about the exercises. Yeah. Well, we don't have to talk about all the exercises. I know it's super individualized, but anything you want to share? Yes, I do. So there was a provider a little bit away from me, not someone that I regularly refer to, but, you know, amazing surgical provider. But this person was giving just exercises, like kind of seemingly random or everyone gets the same stuff. And they had a patient they had the mom put her finger in front of the mouth and have the little girl push her tongue against the finger and push, push it out. And I mean, in the, this provider's mind, okay, you know, this provides resistance. This gets them, you know, moving their tongue and the intentions were good, but guess what we were fighting? A tongue thrust. (laughs) And so I called this person and I was like, look, I know you didn't mean it for this, but this is what this is what we're trying to inhibit. They have no problem sticking out their tongue. I promise you that because their speech was interdentalized, their swallow, their rest posture was all forward. And so that's an example of I really encourage people to be the best that they can be at their profession mm-hmm. and their role and find people that you trust to do the other stuff. Yes. So you don't have to do it all. You right. really don't. Well, and none of us can be a jack of all trades and we shouldn't try to be. That's why people specialize and that's why we have a team. So 100%. Yes. I don't want to do what my, the IBCLC does. I do feeding. I do not do breastfeeding. You know, I know there are people out there who do both and, who, and then they're fabulous at what they do and they really specialize in that. But again, that's a specialty and they've done a ton of coursework and hours and they have a lot of experience. And so when, you know, a parent comes to me with a baby who's not breastfeeding, I'm really looking at the baby. And if there's issues or concerns about mom, that's when I'm pulling that IBCLC in because I don't, I don't do breastfeeding. I'm not a nutritionist. You know, I know things to a certain level based on what's in my scope. And even if I know more, but it's not in my scope, I'm not going to be sharing that information with you. I'm going to send you to the professional whose scope it's in. So, you know, I think there's a lot to be said about staying within our scope and staying within our specialties and also really knowing when to refer out and when to pull those other people in and really holding true to that with our families. Because I think if we kind of waver on that, then they go, well, you're not, you know, super strong in your recommendation. So why am I going to go to this person and spend all this money or time or whatever? Um, so yeah, I think there's definitely a lot to be said about that, that whole team yeah. approach. So we all know why we're recommending what we're recommending. And, and that's also why I get 
consented to send my release provider or send my other team members the report. And with that report, I will send them an email and basically in the email say, hey, here are my main concerns. Boom, boom, boom. Here's the report, you know, and that way we're all on the same page and we all know what we're looking at. And so when the release provider or whoever it might be looks at the report, meets the child or the adult, and then, you know, decides whether they're going to proceed with a procedure or not, we're all, again, on the same page and we know what our ultimate goal is. We know what we're working for. And that's where I feel like we deliver the best care. So, yeah, I think we all kind of need to know why we're doing what we're doing. <laughs> yes, and the left hand needs to know what the right hand is doing. Yes. And we kind of do the same thing in our area. We have a, a green light system mm. and a referral email, you know, has the patient's name and green light um, as in, hey, they've been assessed. They're therapeutically ready. Mm, I like that. They've been educated and mm. they have follow-up care scheduled. So they're on our schedule. I did want to touch, I just remembered how you were talking about um, patients coming to you after the release and they're like, oh, I just had my release yesterday and I'm supposed to see you really soon. That doesn't work. It's just really hard. And, you know, I will move heaven and earth to see, you know, a little baby that's not gaining weight and just had a release, you know, see him on my lunch, stay late, come in early, whatever. But it's really not fair. And it's really hard to do that. And I think the breakdown comes from the therapeutic model versus like the procedural model. Mm -hmm. You know, you can squeeze somebody in for a 10 minute procedure versus we see our patients, you know, every week. If yeah. you come Wednesday at two, I'll see you every Wednesday at two. So it's not like we have, unless there's cancellations or, you know, someone graduates therapy or whatever. It's not like we have just ongoing openings that we can see people in. Yeah. And I think that's important to understand. And that just comes from building the relationship with your team. Mm -hmm. I encourage everyone to, you're going to refer to someone, go see what they do. Yes. Time and effort. But my providers have all come and seen a session or seen an assessment. Mm -hmm. um, mm -hmm. And I've seen their procedures and their protocols and education. And I know how it works in their office. Mm -hmm. So it really, really helps to be talking the same talk. And um, I think the patients appreciate it too. It's I was out to dinner with um, my ENT colleague that is doing a lot of these functional releases now. And he said that he told um, this family, you know, X, Y, Z, and they kept saying, well, that's what Autumn said. And that's what Autumn <laughs> said. I think it really yields credibility on gives families the comfort that, hey, you know, my team members are talking to each other. You know, they are invested in me and or my child's health. And you know, they're kind of singing the same song that that would help my comfort too. Yeah, 100%. Well, and my so my team also we have we try to do a monthly study club where we're actually getting together and discussing and they're not always sometimes recurring cases, but sometimes they're past cases. Um, and we're trying to get together and kind of as if take a team approach and I'll talk about what we're seeing and learn from each other's perspectives. Because I think that you know, going to their offices, knowing their protocols, being, you know, having a team protocol, having like, I love your green light, red light system that you use. I think just having that, that, I mean, that's something I want to implement immediately because I think that's genius. You know, here I am just like shooting off emails and going, okay, hey, they're ready or hey, like we, they, I'm recommending four weeks of pre-op or whatever. You know, I think green light, red light would definitely help yeah. us focus on like who should be scheduled first and who can, you know, who needs to wait a few weeks um, just from an immediate 
viewpoint. So anyways, yeah, I think there's a lot to be said about that team approach, knowing your providers, knowing their office, knowing their protocols, um, you know, from both sides, them knowing yours and you know, you knowing theirs. I think that is a really, really good tip. I think a lot of professions can learn from each other while still staying like in our own lanes and doing what we do best. Um, so yeah, I think that's a really, really awesome tip there. And one thing I want to say is about that pre-op, one of the things that I try to explain to families too is, you know, and, and I learned a lot of my active wound care versus my exercise stuff from coming to your class. That can totally changed how, and we'll talk about your class in a minute, but that totally changed how I was doing pre-op and post-op and how I was educating families because I was kind of just going based on what my providers were doing. And I was like, well, this isn't my, this is not my thing. This is their thing. So I'm going to kind of piggyback on what they're doing because it's their patient. They're referring to me or whatever. Um, but now I've been able to go back to the table with my providers and say, Hey guys, let's instruct families based on whether, and, and again, most of my providers, I do have one ENT that um, sees kids that does use, you know, a scissor. Um, but most of my other providers are using like the light scalpel or a CO2 laser. So anyways, we had that discussion, you know, what is active wound care versus what are exercises? Why do we do them? And why is it important to do it before the release and really get used to, you know, get in there, like you said, and just get everybody used to the feeling. And I also really educate families on like decreasing tension, you know, like how can we decrease the tension if we are in control of our face and our neck and our posture and different things, it's going to provide, I tell them, it's going to provide for a much better release and it may help prevent you from needing another release down the road. So if we can get you best suited for this release and we go to a provider who we know can do a functional or a full release, we want to set you up for success so we don't have to do this again. <laughs> That's the whole goal here is we want to, you know, but that involves a lot of pre-op and post-op. It can't just be done. It's not a one-stop shop, get your tongue tie released and all your problems are fixed kind of thing, um, which I think is the misconception that we see a lot on like Facebook and the mom groups. And, you know, even just this morning, I saw a mom post about her um, infant and she said, my five-month-old was just released and I won't throw any names out there, but um, it's actually a release provider who I know is a good one, but who a colleague of mine, I think, works with and who tells me there is no pre and post-op. There's just no protocol in place. Um, they're just releasing the babies. And the mom said, baby is on a nursing strike. Baby won't eat. Baby's uncomfortable. Baby's crying. You know, baby's in. Well, yeah, did anybody educate you that there is going to be some discomfort and what to do in that case? And how we might, you know, help the baby feed during these 24 hours following the procedure or, you know, several days later when pain might start to come back based on how inflammation is and how healing's going. I mean, did anybody talk to you about this? I mean, that's as a mom who went through this, I'm like, oh gosh, you know, you already have all these hormones, and these emotions, and this mom guilt, and then you throw your baby into procedure and you trust people. And then here you are all by yourself at home dealing with an infant or a toddler or whatever who's not feeling good and doesn't want to eat. And that's the whole purpose you, you did. Some, that's the reason why you did it in the first place. <laughs> so, you know, I just think there's so much to be said for more education and more of this team approach and the pre-op and the functional, you know, assessment. And, you know, we've talked about a lot of this today, but um, is there anything else that you want to add that we haven't touched on or? I kind of developed this model. It's called the E3 model of care and it's evaluation, education, and execution of a treatment plan. I say this every class. I love teaching the education component because that's where I feel a lot is to be gained. And 
it's not just educating the patient and the family, it's educating your colleagues as well, all your team members. They need to know what your expertise is and what you're seeing and um, vice versa. And so, like you said, you know, preparing families ahead of time um, or patients ahead of time. Okay, I, I see this a lot. I see um, a release provider recommend doing Tylenol the first couple days. <laughs> but then if you know about wound healing and about, you know, the different phases of wound healing, usually around that three to, three to seven day mark, you have a really big spike in inflammation. Like, like you said, I, I say the best continuing education that you can take is your own experience and yes. your children. Oh, yes. <laughs> um, so honestly, I had a little girl who mom was doing her tongue lifts just fine the first couple days after her procedure. And then like the third or fourth day, she started biting her mom. Mm -hmm. And, you know, this was like a three or four year old. And I thought to myself, well, that's ridiculous. Why is she biting now? Like she's been doing it for a couple days just fine. Like, you know, she's just being a little twerp. <laughs> and, um, and then, you know, I had my procedure done and the first few days weren't bad, you know, and everyone's interpretation of discomfort is, is very different, but it was definitely more inflamed and tender on, you know, days around three to seven. And so that really totally changed my outlook on preparing people and preparing them for what may or may not happen and empowering them. So they know when something is concerning versus, okay, this is to be expected right. or um, giving them some troubleshooting strategies. You know, I haven't had this happen in a very, very long time where, you know, a baby goes on a, a feeding strike but, you know, it can happen. It is an oral surgery. It, it is something happening. You know, you always want to prepare for the extremes. And there's always going to be things that you've never encountered before. And, yeah, I think we just have to keep learning. And, you know, doing things like this podcast and going to courses and having study clubs and things like that. You know, if you're not doing those and you're a provider, um, a healthcare provider, then it's time to retire. You know, you're not continuing to, to grow and learn and in it to continue helping people. Absolutely. Well, I think we've talked about a lot of awesome things today. And I, um, like I said, I attended your course and I guess that was last summer. I think that was a year ago. Um, and learning about your E3 model of care was just eye-opening for me. You know, I was already working with these patients, but to, like I said, like to differentiate between active wound care and stretches. And I was like, oh, these are like two different things. Like, okay, well, this is not something I had ever heard or learned before. And, and you know, and I'm that person who will put myself into a course. And if I learn something that I think is beneficial to my, my patients, my families, I will 100% start implementing it. Um, I have no shame in saying, you know, or being vulnerable even, or saying, you know, hey, I've, I've learned something new and I wanna apply this. I think it's gonna help you better. I think when you kind of get stuck in needing to be the best and like not being wrong ever in your practice, like you're in a very dangerous place. So all being a lifetime learner makes you the best clinician. It makes you the best provider, regardless of where you are in the medical field. Um, so there's, yeah, there's a lot to be said to that. So thank you so much for your course, because that was just phenomenal. I really enjoyed attending that last summer. Um, and I know that if anybody wants to look into your course, um, I want you to share the name of it again and tell us the website where they can sign up if they want to attend. 
So my company is Chrysalis Orofacial, and we pretty much specialize in um, orofacial function throughout the lifespan. So from breastfeeding all the way up to um, adults with sleep apnea and everything in between, um, feeding and speech issues, tongue thrust, or rest posture, things like that. And so my course is TOTS Training, all capitals, T-O-T-S, Training. My website is chrysalisorofacial.com. I get to run around the country and talk with people like you. And um, it's a whole lot of fun because it's interactive. And every time I teach, I learn. So Mm -hmm. typically the people that attend POTS training are uh, dentists, chiropractors, speech pathologists, or facial myologists, lactation professionals. And, you know, over the years, I developed it for the person doing the functional stuff. So the lactation, the OT feeding therapist, the myo people, um, the SLPs. But over the years, I'm loving it because the release providers and the body workers want to come because they want to educate themselves. At this point, it's about, I would say, 60% speech, OT, and lactation, and then 30% uh, nurse practitioners, dentists, ENTs, and pediatricians, awesome. and about ten percent um, body workers, like craniosacral therapists and chiropractors. So it's a really fun mix, and it's really really neat to see and hear all the perspectives. Mm-hmm. And so I love I love just going on this learning journey, and um, I'd love to have anybody um, contact me about the course and sign up to come, so. Awesome, and then your private practice, where are you located? You're, I know you're in uh, South Carolina, but where exactly in case somebody yes. hears this and wants to connect with you? Yes, so I'm in Greenville, South Carolina, um, so that's the upstate of South Carolina. Mm-hmm. I um, work for a nonprofit, and I work there three days a week with um, all pediatrics. I only do feeding and myofunctional disorders, and then through chrysalis orofacial, I see adults with myofunctional concerns referred by their orthodontist or their ENT or whoever. So yeah, I'm, I'm kind of pulled in a lot of directions, but it's, it's, I love it and it's fun. And, um, you know, I really like making an impact and being a part of people's health journey. Awesome. Very cool. Um, well, I know you shared with me a poster uh, presentation that you saw at the IAOM convention. So um, what I'll do is I'll actually put that in the show notes because I think people are always seeing new and, you know, information maybe they haven't seen before. It may not be so new out there in the world, but it's new to them. Um, and I know that there's always that conversation about like, we need more research. So I will definitely link to that information. We'll get that up there somehow. And then, um, everything else we discussed as far as like your course and your website, I'll make sure that's in the show notes. So if you're listening to this, don't feel like you have to like, write things down. I probably should have said that earlier. (laughs) If you're driving and listening to this, please don't, you know, (laughs) write and drive um, or hold your phone. Um, But yes, we will put all that in the show notes. We'll make sure that they have access to that so they can come and see you, hear you speak and learn about your E3 model of care and active wound care versus, you know, exercises and all that fun stuff. But I think that is, that's so cool that you have all these different providers coming now. Cause I know last summer, I think it was a big room full of you know, maybe some speech, OT, I think there was like one or two pediatricians in there and maybe like 
a couple dentists, one of which was mine that I work with. <laughs> um, and actually, two of the dentists that I referred to were in that room. I think maybe, oh, and then there was a third one who was also in the back, um, who was uh, one of the sponsors or connected to the sponsor. Yeah. So anyways, you know, I think that's super cool though, because it sounds like you are getting out there, you're, you're educating and that's just what we need so much of. We need that education. So I'm so excited for you. Um, and, and that's the whole goal behind this podcast is just to kind of get this information out there to the masses. And if it makes just one person kind of stop and think and go like, Oh, I need to get to that course or, Oh, like I need to learn more about X, Y, or Z. And it helps to grow them as a provider or help them learn who to refer to. If it's not something that they're interested in treating, then I feel like my job is done. So, <laughs> you know, that's, that's the goal here. Thank you for doing this and having me. It was absolutely, I, you know, this is not work for me. I love, I know. <laughs> <laughs> it's so funny because when I do these, it's like we sit on the, the the call and I'm like, well, we could talk about this all day. Well, we should probably end it because people are going to get bored listening to us talk about it all day. <laughs> but anyways, thank you again so, so much. I hope you have a beautiful day. Okay, great. Thank you. All right. Thanks, Autumn. Thanks for listening to this podcast. If you want to hear more of these Mayo Tots airway and feeding related episodes, be sure to leave a review on Apple Podcasts or pledge a small amount on patreon.com forward slash the untethered podcast. If you found value, others you know in this space will too. So be sure to share this episode on your social media platforms and join us over on Facebook, on my Facebook page at Hallie Balkan Biz, on Instagram at, at Hallie Balkan. And you can head over to untetheredpodcast.com to grab a copy of the show notes where you can also also subscribe to be kept up to date on the latest podcast episodes. Big shout out to Dana McKay, podcaster extraordinaire for editing and helping me keep this podcast alive.